This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That joined on Football CFB by former England international Carlton Palmer, former Sheffield Wednesday, Leeds United, Southampton, Nottingham Forest, Coventry City, a few other clubs as well. And one thing about, about Carlton is whether he played for your clubs or played against them, you'll know who, who he is. Tenacious midfield player, um, someone who wasn't scared of a, a battle in midfield as well, it's safe to say. First of all, Carlton, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. And, and the first thing before we talk about your career in life and football, what is it you're up to now? Because, well, I, I've read in the press that you, you're based in China at the moment. How's that situation been for you with the inevitable lockdown and, and the current situation across the world? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, yeah, we've, we've been here now um, for, I think, this is going into our seventh year that we've been in, in, in Shanghai. Uh, it's an absolute fantastic place uh, to live and to work. And you'd be surprised the amount of expats out there. You know, when I go to watch the football on a Saturday night, the pub's full of English people. Um, you know, there, there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great city to work and live in. Um, but obviously, when, when we knew, we were away. We have a Chinese New Year break uh, around about January. Uh, and we were away in the Maldives on holiday when we got the news that uh, the coronavirus had, had broken. Um, so we decided to, to, to come back to the UK. Um, but obviously we contracted uh, and we were told to return by the 23rd of March, um, of, of which we did do. Um, and when we returned, like, like I was telling to, saying to my parents, you know, unfortunately everybody can blame the Chinese, they can say whatever they want to say. They can't blame the Chinese for not taking responsibility and dealing with the, with the situation properly. I, I, I told them when I did a podcast, when I came back to the UK, I said, you have no idea what's coming. Um, and the way the UK have dealt with it and, and, and people losing their lives left, right and centre. My wife's just buried her grandfather last week to the coronavirus. It's an absolute disgrace. Here, we arrived back here uh, we had to stay on the plane. They took us off in, in, in rows in terms of where you lived. You had to go for immediate testing. So we went and got the test. We had to stay in a hotel while we got the test results. When they got the test results, they, uh, depending on whether you're negative or clear, so Lucy and I were, were clear, we were, they, we were then driven uh, back to... Uh, our apartment, of which it's locked. There's a device on the door, um, and that is it. You're allowed to open it twice a day to collect food deliveries, and that's it for two weeks. That is it. Every day you have to take your own temperature, send it through to the nurse, and that's how they've controlled it in Shanghai. 23 million people. They haven't had 50, they haven't had 100 cases in the last three months. You know, and when we flew back initially at the end of January, 
into the UK. There was no testing. We went for a short break uh, to our home in Portugal. No testing coming back. You know, and it's, it's really sad how, they, you know, and when I'm talking about in China, when this broke in Shanghai, they shut everything. Shut the schools, shut businesses, shut the trams. Everything came to a standstill. And so then they went and every, they gradually got back to normal, but back to normal by testing everybody. By testing everybody, quarantining people. And then, so now, obviously, they're very, very careful. The borders have been shut here for a while. We're hearing reporters that they won't maybe reopen till next summer because obviously they're concerned not just about foreigners traveling in, but Chinese nationals coming back you know, of, of, of carrying the, the coronavirus. Um, so that's what they do. They lock it down. You have to do your two-week quarantine. When we did our two-week quarantine, me and Lucy, we're allowed to go about our business. All bars, restaurants, pubs, gyms, everything reopened. And in terms of the, the way they've handled the crisis in Shanghai, you've talked about how in-depth they've handled it. You've got many friends and former colleagues who you'll still be in touch with here in the UK. You, you've hinted at it, but just how stunned are you, the situation we're in in the UK, where there's, there's still hundreds of cases per day? Well, I think what they've done, I think uh, America and the UK have basically, uh, first and foremost, they didn't deal with it properly. And for, for the argument to say, you know, I've heard Boris saying that the argument is a certain amount of people have to get the disease to get an immune, well, what a load of rubbish. Do what Australia did, do what New Zealand did. They followed China and they had very, very few cases. You know, you needed to do an immediate lockdown. Now what's going on is crazy. You, you, trust me, there will be a second spike in the UK. There's already been here in China. We've had Beijing um, about three weeks ago, second spike. But straight away, as soon as the second spike came, which the second spike came in Beijing because of, of the Europeans traveling to Beijing, they locked it down completely locked it down again. And now, again, they've got it under control. So what's going to happen in the UK? There will be a second spike. But what's the point of, lo what's the point of locking down now? Some people have adhered to it. Some people haven't adhered to it. But there's nothing being strict enough. And it's only the people who've lost loved ones who would really understand it. And I understand, you know, that it's not great being in lockdown when you've been for as long as it is. And I understand, I sympathise with people who've got businesses and whatever, but what's more important, people's lives. If everybody had done the lockdown, if he'd had done the lockdown properly in the first place and done it really well, after three months, you could start reopening the place back and start integrating people. I look at people now and, you know, I get, right, but I see them on the beaches and it's, it's, it's disrespectful because I look at my dad now. My dad's not been able to go out the ocean now. He's 87. He's had three heart attacks. If he catches it, he's a goner. So he's not been able to get, go out the house at all. And, and this is a lack of respect that other British people haven't shown. But again, it comes back to the government and Boris Johnson. You know, it's just, I, I'm absolutely flabbergasted at the way they've not dealt with the situation. I really am. And surely, like my wife was saying to me, surely you would speak to somebody like China, okay? You can say whatever you want to say. It's happened. There's been many pandemics before. There'll be many pandemics afterwards. There can be theories about this and theories about that, right? 
Simple fact is, it's here. How do we deal with it to save lives? That's the first thing, right? I believe on Saturday, just gone, there's the highest death toll still on a Saturday for three months. So it's not under control in the UK, but yet he's on about reopening everything now, which is just gonna be, I mean, I can't believe you still can get flights to Spain and, and, and I'm just, it's just beyond me because many more people are gonna die. And to move on to, to what you are up to and what you're doing in China, you mentioned the fact you've, you've been in the country working for seven years. What exactly is your role out there? Yeah, what happened was um, about, I think it was about 2008. Would it be about that? No, hang on a minute. Yeah, around about 2008, I was working with the BBC um, and I wasn't getting anywhere with the BBC at all. It, you know, I wasn't progressing. I wasn't getting the opportunities. I got a job offer to go and work in Dubai to do to work with the TV company over there. Um, Rob McCaffrey went out there and whatever. And we had a great gig out there doing the TV, doing the Champions League, the football, the Premier League. And the, it was fantastic. We lost the rights to uh, Bain Sports. But also, while I was out there, um, I got approached to open a soccer academy up in an international school, which was then Repton. So it wasn't really something I wanted to do, to be honest with you. Um, but my wife was in the UK at the time with the kids and uh, she gave me that old load of rubbish about giving back and kids and this, that, and the other. So I, I, I thought, yeah, yeah, okay, right. So I thought I'd give it a go. And I actually really enjoyed it. I enjoyed um, being back in a kind of team, working with a team and, and, and being around and having the cracks. So, so that's, I started working in an international school there. As I say, we lost the rights to the football that went to Bain Sports in Abu Dhabi. Uh, they didn't want to touch any of the people who'd been working in Dubai. They just wanted all new people. So the, the headmaster of the school in, uh, of Repton got a job in Shanghai. And he said to me, would you be interested in coming and running the, your, your own soccer academy in, a, in, a, in, a, in a Wellington. So there's a Wellington UK in, in, in Shanghai. And I said, well, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, Shanghai is a long way from home. We have four kids and whatever. Um, but I said to Lucy, my wife's a, a head of pre-prep. Um, and I said to her, what, what do you think? I said, I'm not going if you're not coming now because the idea was when the kids uh, went off to university, we, we would go and do that. Um, so she said, well, you know, let's go and have a look. So we came for a week, was unsure. Uh, I mean, it's like London or New York, it's a fabulous city, but to, to move there and work and live, but you've got to be brave. You've got to take yourself out of your comfort zone, you know? Um, so we said, right, we'll go for a year and see how it goes. And we've been here seven years and thoroughly enjoy working here. So um, I'm, a, I'm the academy di director, um, I run, or as well as being the ambassador, overseas ambassador for Wellington College, um, I oversee all the after-school programs within within the college, and I run the Wellington um, First Eleven. So yeah, it's great, enjoying it. Before we talk about um, your your professional career, I want to talk to you about your upbringing. When did you start playing football, and crucially, were you always a midfielder? No. Uh, well, first and foremost, um, I was born in Albury, West Midlands. Uh, my parents are from Jamaica. My mum and dad came over from Jamaica in 56, 57. 
um, I, I kept, ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to play football. I was always with the football. I was always down the park. I was always in the back garden. But my parents coming from Jamaica, they wanted uh, me to, to, to get an education and, uh, and, and like my sisters have done, get degrees and get good jobs. That was the reason why they made the sacrifices. But no, I, I just had it in me that I wanted to play football. Um, you know, and, and so but it, it was tough. I, it wasn't easy. Um, you can imagine, uh, you know, a, a young black lad in those days, there weren't a lot of black footballers around. Um, it was tough. But, you know, I remember my dad's words in my ear saying to me that, you know, if this is what you want to do, you have to find a way. And that's why I always say, I say to my kids now, you have to find a way. It's difficult, but you have to find a way. So, you know, fortunately for me, I, I work my, my socks off and, and, and then you catch a break. I think I always believe this in life. Uh, I've always said this to my children. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but if you work hard, you catch a break. And I caught a break when uh, Ron Atkinson came to West Bromwich Albion and Nobby Styles was the, the youth team manager. And uh, Nobby Styles took a shine to me and he worked with me tirelessly. And, uh, you know, within, you know, I'd, I hadn't even played, I, would, I wouldn't know how many reserve games I played before Ron came in. And Nobby just said to him, listen, I'm, I think this kid is good enough to play in the first team. Within a matter of the time, that was, that's the end of that. I was in the first team and, and away I went. But without catching that break with Ron coming in and also, you know, catching that break with Nobby, just hitting it off. And I, and I think Nobby looked at me and, and, and kind of seen a little bit of me in him. I mean, Nobby never looked like a footballer, but my God, was he effective in what he did. And so he taught me the basis, basics of the game and we worked on the basics and the heart of defending. I am, a, I am naturally a defender. So he taught me the basics of the game um, and, and, and how to work at that. But Ron Atkinson um, said I had too much energy. And, and so, you know, uh, I ended up playing in midfield. That's, that's how I did. Um, but when I went to Leeds United with Howard Wilkinson, the idea was to go back to playing my natural position at centre-back in the hope that, you know, I could go on and play for England many more years to come because the, the likes of players that were coming through then, you know, uh, um, the one thing about me, and I, and I think if you're going to be successful in life, you have to be truthful. You're not going to rival the, the likes of Scholesy and people like that are coming through. You know, you're not going to get away with that. But... I did believe, and I still say to this day, no disrespect to anybody, but it, but it works in both ways. I think I'm a better centre-back than Gary Southgate, right? But then Gary Pallister would say, well, I think I'm a better centre-back than Colton Palmer. And he played for Man United. He got six caps and I got 18 caps. So it's all, it's all opportunities and times, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and you mentioned Big Ron there. Now, you worked under Ron a couple of times, well, three times, I think, all in in your career. What was it like as a character and as a manager? Because we all see the caricature of Big Ron Atkinson, but what was he actually like? Was he, was he someone who is far more serious than sometimes he's painted out to be by the media? Well, I don't, I don't know this media uh, perception about Ron Atkinson. Let's get this right. He was a hugely successful manager at every club he'd been at. Um, I'll clear this up now, and I have this argument with people. Ron Atkinson, he's no racist. 
right? He's never been a racist. He hasn't got a racist bone in his body. Did he make a racist comment? Yes, he did. But there you go, by the grace of God. If we all had, you know, his microphone should have been switched off. Let me tell you, if we went around the country and went in people's houses and had microphones on and off, there'd be a few more people in trouble. I think Ron just got caught up at that, 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 that where the country was becoming a bit more politically correct at the time. Ron's just one of these kind of guys. He's like that love thy neighbour type of style. In all the years I played for Ron Atkinson, I've never heard him refer to my colour or anybody else's colour. And my parents came over, as I said to you, from, from Jamaica and, and, and they were unhappy when it, when, when it all came out. But my dad, you know, knew Ron and he knew, you know, and took my word for, for what I was saying as a bloke. So I, I have to clear that up because you've got, on the one hand, you can say, right, uh, we can go and talk about John Terry, you know, and this is how people are protected and not protected. Did John Terry make a racist comment? Yes, he did. Is he a racist? I don't really know John Terry, but he made a racist comment. But how are you going to get found guilty in a court of law for being racist? It's, it's, it's impossible. When I saw that at the, at the time, I thought, this is an absolute load of rubbish. It's not going to... What they should have done, the FA, is just get him in and say, right, you know what, you've made a racist comment, Right, let's put it to bed. You were going for the, the league, maybe Anton was winding you up, this, that, and the other. You've made a comment, you're banned and whatever. But you see, one person loses a career and the other one gets to go on, gets to go and play in the European Championship. Rio Ferdinand gets left out. I don't care what they say, that's the reason why Rio got left out. Because no disrespects to either player, but if I'm taking, well, this is my personal opinion anyhow, if I'm taking one player or the other, I'm taking Rio Ferdinand over over John Terry. I just happen to think that I think John Terry has had a fantastic career and he's been successful. And I'm not picking on John Terry. I'm just using this as a scenario in the basis of the two incidences when somebody gets protected and when somebody doesn't get protected and on get to dry. Um, but as a manager, he was brilliant. I, I think the biggest thing about Ron was his ability to put teams together. He, could, he, he knew the game inside out. He knows the game inside out. It's a crying shame he's not on TV commentating because I listen to uh, the commentators now and it's more apparent now that there's no, there's no crowd there, there's no nothing. So it's on the commentators to make it interesting to, to watch the game. And I watch and I, and I think it was Ian Bishop uh, texted me yesterday to say, you know, these commentators are poor and Ron knows the game. And, and, and that's what's a sad loss to the game that he's not partaking his... His, his, his knowledge about the game. But he, 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 he had an ability and a knack to put teams together, players together, individuals together, and he knew the game of football. Um, no, and for me personally, he, he always believed in me. He always gave me confidence um, to go out and play, to do what I did. He, he, he always used to say to me, Carl, you haven't got to worry about anybody else. You just go out there and do what you do. And I, I knew what my limitations were. I played, in a, I played in good sides with good players. So my job was to, if I played at centre-back, head the ball, win the ball at the back, and play to players like Gary McAllister, Gary Speed, Gordon Strachan. I played with the likes of Chris Waddle and, and John Sheridan at Sheffield Wednesday. So I played an outside, but they couldn't do what I could do. So the, the balance comes within that. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Ron will always be... Um, a very big part of my life. He, he, he wasn't just a he, he wasn't just a manager to me. He was a, he was like a, a, a second father, if you were. 
um, and somebody I hold in uh, very high regard. In those early games at West Brom, what was it like breaking into the first team? Is it something you were nervous about at all, or did you just take it in your stride? Well, it, 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 the, the the situation was how I got in the first team. I mean, Jimmy Nicol. You, you remember Jimmy Nicol, the Irish right back? Yeah, yeah. Well, he played, but he played in Ireland on the Wednesday and picked up a knock, so they weren't sure whether he was going to be uh, fit to play uh, on the weekend. And Ron Atkinson called me in his office and said to me, we, we were playing Birmingham City, which is a massive game, local derby at home. So big Ron pulled me in the office and he said, like, listen, if I stick you in on Saturday, you wouldn't shit yourself, would you? And, I, you know, you, you, you front it out, don't you? And so of course I wouldn't, boss. You know, he's it's, going to be, it'd be all right. Um, so on the Friday, um, I knew I was playing. And um, to be fair, again, I was the way I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a super confident person. I'm a super positive person. So it's one of those, I, I, just, I just get on with it. I, in life, I do. I get on, I do the best I can. If it's not right, then I look at where I went wrong and where I can improve to go on. As it happens, I got man of the match and, and we won. Um, so, you know, and everything went on from there. You mentioned the fact that it goes on from there. It certainly does. You play well over 100 games at West Brom, establish yourself, and then Sheffield Wednesday come calling. What was it that attracted you to Sheffield Wednesday? Um, because they are a massive club, and you were very, very successful there, still talked about to this day. Well, no. I, well, what happened was I get a phone call on the uh, Sunday to report to the Hawthorns Monday morning. So I'm thinking, oh, shit, where was I last night? What was I up to? This, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and I head to the ground. And when I get to the ground, uh, Bugsy Burris is there. Steve Bull's there. And he said, they, they said to me, uh, Carlton, the club's skin, they're selling us. So I was gutted, really, because West Brom was my hometown club. You know, um, I used to, you know, be on the terraces watching them and whatever. Um, but there was no choice in the matter. The, the, the club had did, made the decision that they were selling the three of us. Uh, Bugsy went to Liverpool. Uh, Bully went to Wolves. And uh, I had a long conversation with, um, with Ken Bates um, about going to Chelsea. And I spoke to one or two other clubs. London was never for me. It was never going to happen. Um, um, and so I, I was umming and ahhing what to do. I mean, um, Chelsea was a big draw at the time. Uh, they were they were looking to sign Dennis Wise and and they were putting a good squad together, um, but then Nobby Styles as usual. I went and sat with Nobby and I said, Nobby, what do you think I should do? And he said to me, Colton, I'm I'm telling you now, in life it's who you play for, and that's what I've done ever since. He said it's not the club, it's who you play for. Who you play for gets the best out of you. He said, I know Sheffield Wednesday are going to get relegated, but you know as well as I do, Ron will put a side together that will get promoted the next season. He said, get yourself up the road. So I made a decision that I'd go and speak to Ron at, at, at Sheffield Wednesday. But I, as, I, as I drove in to Sheffield, I knew Sheffield was the place for me. I, I knew that. My, my family owns, uh, or our family owns, still in Sheffield. Um, we still live in Sheffield. And I just love Sheffield people. I love where we live. 15 minutes we're into, you know, Derbyshire. It's beautiful. And I had nine, nine fantastic years there. Really did. Met some, uh, played with some great players. Met some 
people that I would regard friends for life, you know, um, the likes of Chris Waddle, Mark Bright, Danny Wilson, Nigel Worthington, Nigel Pearson. I mean, I owe Nigel Pearson and Nigel Worthington both a great deal. You know, they both took me under their wing when I first went there, got me involved with their financial guide to invest my money, to put money into my pensions and stuff like that. So it wasn't just what happened to me just on the football field, it, what happened off the field. You, you mentioned Chris Waddle there. Just, just what was he like to, to train with on a daily basis and also to have in your team? Because he seems like one of those guys, especially from your perspective in midfield, where if you win the ball back every time, I imagine you were just looking to try and get it to him because he just was always capable of a moment of magic. Well, there's, there's, there's talented players and there's talented players. And Chris Waddle is a talented player. You know, this is simple as it is. You, you, you've got people like Messi, Ronaldo, people like that. They're on a different level. Chris Waddle is completely on a different level. Um, but it's ironic the first day he came to the club, he turned around to me the first day. He said, you're a better player than people give you credit for. Get on the ball and play. And that's, that's, that's coming from Chris Waddle. Um, you know, I mean, he's just, he, he was just a sup superb footballer who understood the game of football. Um, understood how to play it and he, and he was a nightmare to play against you, you couldn't play against him because he, he played on the right hand side but he could go in. I mean I remember playing at West Ham one day and they were shouting to show him down the outside on his, on his right foot I said well we'll do that at your peril he stepped over and banged it in with his right foot in the top stanch he could go either way he could go either way so he was a nightmare to mark and if you double tagged him if you double tagged him he, he had the ability to release the ball early. Um, you know, and, and players who, who, who run quick, it sounds silly, but players who run quicker with the ball, Messi does it, Ronaldo does it, Gazza used to do it, Wadler does it. If you did a running session now, Wadler wouldn't be nowhere near the front. But if you put a ball at his feet and did a running session with the ball at his feet to the halfway line, he'd beat most people. And that's the difference when these players when they pick the ball up and they're quicker they, and they generate that pace. Like you see it with Messi week in, week out. It's gone. He's gone with the ball. It's very difficult to mark those type of players. Very difficult. It's just, it's just God-given talent. And when you look at that Sheffield Wednesday team, you talked about Nigel Pearson, Nigel Worthington, John Sheridan, Danny Wilson. Um, Trevor Francis was there at the time as well. So many of your teammates at that club went on to become managers. So I imagine that was a very strong dressing room with big characters and big leaders. Correct. Correct. It was. It's, it, there's no ironic that, that how many of them went on. Viv Anderson, Danny Wilson, myself, Nigel Pearson, Nigel Worthington, uh, John Sheridan, John Arks, um, Danny Wilson... Uh, Peter Shirtcliffe. Um, yeah, it was a very, it's a very, very strong dressing room, very demanding dressing room. But God, we had some fun. We had a crack, but we had respect for each other. Um, and and so, you know, once you have respect and and everybody's aware of each other's jobs, you you know, you've got a mixture. You you look at Nigel Pearson, you would say, you know, not the best in terms of you know, like a Gary Pallister, but you'd have him in your team every week. Got Nigel Worthington, uh, Irish international, unbelievable player. You got Roland Nielsen, another one who became a manager, arguably the best right back I, I've ever 
uh, well, certainly I played with, but probably the best I've ever seen. I mean, he came back in 1991 without playing one game to play in the Rumbelows Cup final and Mark Ryan gigs out again. You know, just outstanding. But these players are different. They demanded um, of each other and they demanded of themselves. We didn't have an issue with treatment room. We didn't have an issue with, you know, players not playing when they weren't fit. It was just a, a, a tremendous uh, team. And for me, it broke up far too early. It was broke up far too early. When you look at your success at that club, not only in the in the top flight, but in the in the League Cup, as you say, and the, the obvious question I've got for you with the, the success that you had in the run to the final, how disappointing was it for you to miss out and playing in the final due to suspension? And how did you handle that on the sidelines? Because I always imagine for someone with your character who was a leader on the field, was it particularly hard to sit and watch that final? No, it wasn't. Uh, I'm not going to say to you I wasn't disappointed because I obviously was. I was bitterly disappointed. I remember coming in after the Portsmouth game and Ron went to me, you fucking idiot, you don't realise what you've done now. You can't play in the cup final. I mean, we were going for the we were going for promotion as well. So the Portsmouth game was two weeks before the cup final. Um, and it was a it was a stupid challenge, it was a reckless challenge. I deserved a red card. Um, and I, obviously I was gutted. I knew that I was going to miss the final. We tried, we went down to we went down, and I, and, I, and I don't agree with this, I really don't. Uh, we went down to the FA and uh, we spoke to them. If you remember the year before, Alex Ferguson went down with uh, Gary Neville and they allowed Gary Neville to play. And I don't believe that, that unless it's violent conduct, unless it's violent conduct, if you've played, you know, it's not a case of like, you've got to look merit for merit. You can't just bring a player in who's not played in any of the rounds or whatever. But if a player like myself, who isn't in trouble with the FA, I'm not in trouble, you know, in anything, right? And you've you, you played in every round of the FA Cup, you should be allowed to play that game and serve a suspension afterwards. That, that, that's just my opinion. That's for, that's, you know, I, I, I think that's only fair, right? Especially, you know, you don't get to go to a cup final. You know, you, you, you look at the great players who've never played in an FA Cup final or a, or a cup final at, at Wembley at all. You know, but Ron, Ron, as usual, called me in and he said to me, son, I need to have a chat with you. He said, Carlton, he said, listen, he said, I'm gutted, the lads are gutted. He said, but you're going to have to play the best game you've ever played this weekend. And I said to him, Gaffer, I'm not playing. He said, you are. He said, if you go down there and you are sulking and you're moping around in training and around the lads, he said, it's only going to bring that down. He said, if you go down there and be the way you are, bubbly, be around the lads, keep them happy, he said, the, the lads will do the rest for you. And you know what? I was delighted for it. John Sheridan actually told me the night before that he would score the winning goal. And that's a gospel truth. And he said he would run up to me. And if you see, when he scores, he runs up to me. Um, and, and, and the lads were absolutely brilliant all week. They involved me. Uh, Ron Atkinson did a speech in the night time when we won to say, you know, that, you know, the only disappointment was Carlton didn't play. Um, so, although I'm not going to lie to you and say I wasn't disappointed, of course I wanted, I wanted to, to play. 
but I was delighted for everybody connected with the club. I was delighted for the staff and the players and everybody and, 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 and the supporters because they, they deserved it. And the, and the way that whole weekend evolved, I mean, Man United were going for the treble. And the way that Ron had dealt with it and how he, you know, he, he, he told the boys, he said to him, if Man United turn up today, we get beat. But he said, if we don't turn up, we haven't got a chance. So he said, if we turn up and our goalkeeper does well, right, he said, then we've got a chance. And we turned up. Nigel Pearson was magnificent. He got man of the match. He marked Sparky out the game. And to a man, they were terrific. And Man United had their chances in the game. Uh, you, you're not going to win a game against a team so good like that if you don't ride your luck a little bit. Uh, and, that, and that's the beauty of football sometimes. Looking back at that spell, the League Cup success, although you didn't play in the final, still a very big part of getting to the final, deserve the medal that you get. When you look at that time in your career, you break into the England squad. Just is, Would you say you played the best football of your career at Sheffield Wednesday? No, I don't. And, I, I, and it, isn't it crazy? I, I played some of the best football of my career. I went to Leeds United when I was 26 years of age. I was in the peak. You can, you can go back and, and, and watch the videos. We went to a cup final at Leeds United where they hadn't been to a cup final in how many years? Um, at centre-back, I was playing great football. But again, this is the media. This is the, the thing that happened. When Terry Venables took over for England, I knew I'd never play for England because it's that London mafia. I knew I'd never play for England again. It's that London mafia. How can you pick a squad that I was man of the match in the last game for England where Dick Advocate, the Dutch manager, had cited me as England's best player and then not to be selected in the squad, the only player to be elected out to the next squad. It, it just doesn't make sense. But that's, that's the politics of it all. Um, so, no, I played at centre. I went, I went and played lead, at centre-back at Leeds. And, and I, played, I played very, very well at Leeds, you know. Um, so, it was disappointing. I, I think the, the, the boys at Leeds used to feel that they had an hard time up there getting picked for the national team. You know, I think it's easier to get picked if you're down south, you know. Um, so I think, I think the boys generally felt that they, they found it harder to be selected up that end. And, and as I said, I was bitterly disappointed. I played uh, extremely well at Leeds and, uh, and, and not to be recognised in, in terms of I'm looking at the centre backs that were were selected to go in there at the time. Um, and I felt that I deserved to be in and amongst that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, if somebody had said to me, when I started out as a snotty low kid from Oldbury, that I'd end up with 18 England caps, yeah, I'd thank you very much. And that's testament to or all the young kids out there who don't believe that they can achieve anything. If you work hard enough, you can. You can. And in terms of England, you mentioned the fact 18 England caps, an incredible achievement for any player. And for you, someone who at times, as you've hinted at there with the media, this perception of the sort of type of player that you were, you get pigeonholed into being a certain caricature, if you want, for want of a better phrase. When you look back at those 18 caps, how do you reflect on your time with England? Because as I've said there in the intro to this piece, no many players get 18 caps for England and you're talking about some players who people wax lyrical about. Well, I think I'm in the top 50 players to have ever played for England. 
I think I'm, in, I'm the 24th black player to have ever represented my country, country and the 124th player, black or white, to have ever represented England. So there's, that, says what it, that says what it says. If you look at my, my time with England, um, the, the, the biggest disappointment was not qualifying for the World Cup. But that was, I, I can't tell you that campaign was just, it was just, it was just like it wasn't meant to be. It was just like incredible the things that went against us. You know, Wembley was shut um, for renovation. So we knew that was going to happen. So we'd have to play the first two games at home and then the last two, the last two games away from home. We murdered, I think it was either Norway or Denmark, we murdered in the first game at Wembley. They, they, they play two, three minutes overtime. The guy lashes one in from about 35 yards into the stanch. We end up drawing that game where they, we should never have draw, drawn that game. You'd probably look at the two Holland games as the deciding factors. Well, the Holland game at home, we were 2-0 up with a minute to go to half-time. Dennis Bergkamp scores an absolute worldy to put them back in the game. But we battered Holland that night, and I mean battered them. Les Ferdinand was brought down, clear penalty. Um, we hit the woodwork. Voters should have been sent off. If you watch the game again and see the elbow on Gaza is an absolute disgrace, which fractures Gaza's cheekbone so he can't play in the rematch uh, over there. And then, you know, we go over there. And I, still to this day, how does Ronan Kuhneman not get sent off? Every, it, it's, either, it, it's either a penalty or it's a sending off. That's as simple as it is. And that's how close we came to qualifying for the World Cup. It, 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 you know, we hit the woodwork twice. Their free kick was, you know, uh, I think Incy charged it down. He was a judge to have moved too early. And before Dave Seaman was able to reset again, he was able to take the free kick quickly again and puts it in. We get a free kick at the other end. And that as is, we're not allowed to retake it and they encroach. It was just, you know, it was just one of those things where, where it was just not meant to be, um, you know, which was, was really sad. That would have been, you know, I'd have continued the form I'd been in. I'm, I'm sure I would have been selected to, to have gone to the World Cup. And that's, that's a bit of disappointment that I didn't get to play in a World Cup. You know, I played in the European Championships in 92 in Sweden. But, you know... I'm not going to start bitching about what I did or what I didn't do. I was delighted with, 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 with my career. And, and, and like I always say to my kids, the most important thing is when you finish doing something that you've maximised everything to the full. You can't sit back and have regrets. It's too late then. It's too late. Maximise everything to the full. And I did that. I was lucky enough to play till I was 38. Uh, I went out on my terms, retired on my terms. Um, you know, I could have carried on playing. Um, but... Uh, but, um, you know, I felt it was the right decision to, to retire. And, and, you know, I've been lucky enough in, in later life to, to be able to do the things I've done. And in terms of the players you played with for the England national team, who would you say were the best that you played alongside? Because some incredible names there. Well, it's, it's difficult because, you know, you, 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 you look at so many... So many great players who, 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 who were involved in that England setup. I mean, of course, John Barnes, you, you, can, you, you can never um, imagine the type of player he was uh, in terms of, um, for me, at one time, I think he was arguably one of the best players in the world. 
Gary Lineker, um, great goal scorer, you know, um, you know, Des Walker. Uh, it was a privilege to play in the same side as, as Tony Adams. Um, you know, midfield players, NC. And without shadow of a doubt, I think, you know, Gazza's up there as one of the, the best players I've, I've ever seen or, uh, and played with. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's hard to, to pick individual players out because, you know, Ian Wright, you know, perhaps didn't have the England career that he should have had with his ability in goal scoring, but, you know, still a great talent. Um, you know, so many, so many good players, good players. From Sheffield Wednesday to Leeds United, another juggernaut of a club. What was it like playing at Ellen Road in front of those fans? Because one of the, the most historic clubs in English football and a club that now after all these years looks as if it's finally on its way back to the Premier League as well. Yeah, and no, I'm delighted for them. I, 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 a few fans were, were wondering if they were going to blow up again this season and people have been texting me and saying, what, what do you think about Leeds? I said, no, they deserve to go up last season. They, everybody has a bad run and their, their bad run came in the, at the tail end of the season. They play at a high tempo. He, he didn't have a particular uh, massive squad. And so he was unfortunate that it just blew up, blew up. At, at, at the tail end of last season. Without a shadow that they'll go up this season and, de and fully deserve to go up, which is, it's a crying shame that Leeds United have not been in the Premier League and, and, and it's great that they'll be back there. Um, I, I, I actually wasn't going to Leeds United. Um, I was, I'd made a decision, Trevor Francis had decided to sell me. I, I, I'd made a decision and I had an agreement in principle to go to Aston Villa with Ron Atkinson again. Uh, what happened was Ron was, Ron was away at uh, the World Cup. The deal was done, um, but not signed. And he was at the World Cup. Uh, I get a phone call from my agent saying that Howard Wilkinson would, has, has increased the offer. So I think it was something like 2.8, 2.9 million. Um, and, he said, and, and he said, well, you know, in all fairness, you need to do him the, the courtesy of going to speak to him. He happened to be my next door neighbour, so um, I went. I went. I, I went to speak to Howard, and uh, it was just strange. I, I'd, I'd worked for Ron for so long, and I was just. I just hit it off straight away with Howard. I liked the way he was. He was very, very assertive. He was very, very sure. He was very, very confident about. You know, he was always talking about. Already talking about. You know, I think. You know, I know your natural position is centre-back. You come to Leeds United, play at centre-back for me. You'll, 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 you know, I was obviously, at that point, I had not been selected for England, but he said, you'll go on and have many more England caps. Uh, and it just felt right at the time. Uh, my kids were in school in Sheffield. Howard said I could stay living in Sheffield. Um, so it just felt right. And then I went to Leeds and, and, and I'm glad I did. I had a, a fantastic experience working with the likes of Gordon Strachan, Gary McAllister, Tony DiRigo, you know, and I learned, I learned so much more about um, the game. I, meant, I learned so much more about myself. I, I, you know, when I, when I watched the likes of Gary McAllister and Gordon Strachan coming in an hour before even training started, practicing, doing all the things they did, I then realised that when Gary McAllister's taking a corner and the gaffer tells him to put it in a certain place, I understand why he could do that. I understand when he's taking a free kick, why he can do it, because he practices it every day, every day, every day. You know, so, you know, it, it just opened a, 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 um, 
a different side for me. And I had a great time there. And unfortunately for me, when Howard got the sack, there was always going to be a problem with George Graham. That was never going to work out for me. So, you know, that was kind of a, a difficult period for me because, you know, it's hard then when you, you, you come into your, your 30s and, and um, people are looking at you and, and seeing you more as a firefighter than not somebody that can help them win a league or win a cup, you know? You mentioned Gordon Strachan there. Just what was Gordon like to, to play alongside? Because lots of people from the younger generations know Gordon as the manager and as the coach, but an incredible footballer when you look back at his CV over the years, Aberdeen, Man United, Leeds as well, of course. Well, I couldn't. I just couldn't believe him. He was, he was phenomenal, even at the age he was when I went there. And his infectiousness and his desire to win. His desire to win was... Well, Jesus, it was just huge. But his desire to, you know, I mean, at his age, what was he, 39, 40? Tracking back. He was a technically gifted footballer. Um, you know, he's just an eye-opener and lived and breathed football. And, um, yeah, no, it was great for me to play with, with Gordon, Gary McAllister. Uh, uh, Bats was there for a little while and moved on. Um, Tony DiRigo, another terrific. Uh, fullback, um, you know, John Lukic in goal, then Nigel Martin came, who was a terrific goalkeeper. Um, you know, Gary Kelly had just started emerging. What a huge talent he was, you know. Uh, Noel Whelan, you know, there were good times. Again, great times, great players and, and good people as well. Before we go on to, to Southampton, I want to ask you a question about the sort of 90s culture. And this isn't me asking this directly at you because it affected every club up the length and breadth of the country. You think of Arsenal, they did traditional Tuesday club and, and, and that sort of thing. Was that as prevalent at the clubs you were at as well in terms of the drinking culture? Because even yeah. Manchester United players have come out like Roy Keane. Um, a lot of the time, Hadeep said that throughout the 90s, it was just commonplace for him as well. Oh yeah, and I always I always had a couple of drinks on a Friday night. The gaffer wherever wherever I played at, whether I was in a hotel, where Sheffield Wednesday, I used to go to my local pub on a on a Friday night, have two pints of Guinness. We had a we had a Tuesday club at Sheffield Wednesday. I think mean, that's part and parcel of what's gone out of the game now. There's no characters as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't see well, not one springs to mind. Um and and they're not allowed to be who they are, and that's part and parcel of individuals and individuals when they go on the football pitch. I don't get that if you've played on a Saturday night or you've played on a Saturday and you've got Sunday off, what's wrong with going out and, and having a drink? These are young players. If you played on a Wednesday and you've got Thursday off, what's wrong with you going out and having a meal on a Wednesday or going out for the lads and having a drink? That's part and parcel. Half the things we did at Sheffield Wednesday, half the things we sorted out, we're in the pub as a group together over a beer. That, that's, that's how things were sorted out. So I don't get it when you've got a young player, like, say, the boy who's at Leicester who got sent home because he wasn't well. He lives on his own and he's, he's gone to the casino to play some um, cards or whatever. What the hell's going on? So if he sits in his own and watches TV, that's all right, but he can't go to the casino and play a few cards. He's not well. It can make no difference. He can't play for England. He's not doing anything wrong, but it's a big hoo-ah about it. You know, because we all want to be political. You know, we can't be like that because it doesn't work that way, right? Football, the, the football stars of the past and the future 
will always come from poverty, from the working class. It'll always be, you look at them from years gone by. So then we're taking it away from the, the working class, which we have done now. We've taken it away from the working class. So the supporters can't identify with the players anymore. It, it, it's become really, really difficult. And, and, and the media have a, have a huge part to play in this. They have a huge part because, they, you know, they don't give the players... I mean, you're a young player. You're a young player. So if you're fit, you going out on a Saturday night and having a drink is not going to affect what you're going to do on a Monday morning when you come into train. It's just not going to do it. It's not. I'm 54 years of age and I'm still doing it now. So, you know, if you're fit, you're fit. That's as simple as it is. And you've got to have a life. You've got to, you've got to, have, a, you, you've got to have the lads going out on a Saturday night. And this is one of the things I've seen in football. I think Marino come out of it the other day saying, hey, players don't pull other players. Now, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, these guys are paying huge money to come and watch us play football. And we ain't at it, right? Well, that's got to be sorted. The lads have got to get after the other lads, demand them to do their jobs and try and do the best. We can't win every Saturday, but try and do the best we can. When was the last time you seen really a player get after another player on the football pitch or whatever? Because everybody's frightened of, you know, what the media are going to say or how this is going to be, uh, you know, how is this going to come across? Um, but it doesn't matter. It's about winning. It's about showing passion. You know, it's, it's about, you know... The fans seeing that at the end of the day, if you've got a dad who's going to a game and he's taking two kids, he's just parted with the best part of 150, 200 quid, right? You're earning thousands of pounds a week. Give him something that at least if he goes home and he says, well, do you know what? We didn't win today, but the lads gave it everything. And that's a, and at Sheffield Wednesday, nobody could ever say that about us as lads. Because we would, I mean, in our dressing room, it was terrible if, the, if somebody wasn't at it. It was terrible. Because it was expected, and it was expected by the manager for, them, for us to do it. But now you haven't, you haven't got players who would do that, who would demand of other people. See, when you look back, having summed up that there very well, do, are you proud of the era you played in? And even though they've got, you would, you would say, maybe a lot more money than the guys that you, of your era did in the 90s, would you, I'm guessing you would not swap it for the world, the era you played in? No. No, but it's all relative. Okay, the money's gone a little bit. The money's gone a little bit more, obviously, because the Premier League's the most marketable league in the world. But it's like every walk of life. Every walk of life. If you're successful, that, be, that, be, that brings you the trappings of success. So if you're a, a Premier League football in the, in the, in the 90s and you're, you're playing for your country, you're going to earn good money. If you were Premier League football in the 70s or 80s, I remember having this conversation with Jimmy Greaves and he was saying to me, oh, the money is crazy these days. But I said, Jimmy, how much were you on? Well, at that time, Jimmy Greaves was probably on about two grand a week. Well, two grand a week, you could buy an house with. So it's, it's, all, it's, it's all relative to the different eras. But in terms, of, in terms of playing football now, I don't think I'd enjoy it. I, don't, I, t I tell you what, the rules would drive me mad. Um, I, no, I, I just don't. I, I, I look at the players I played with and against, right? And I, I just don't believe I would in, in, enjoy the game now. I, I really don't. Um, because it was fun as well. And it had to be fun. I mean, in our dressing room before the game, the music was on. 
John Sheridan be watching the 2.30, right? <laughs> We'd have tennis going on. We, you know, it was banter all the way. But then when the whistle went and it was time to get ready to go and play, the lads were ready to go. That's what, that's what it was about. Um, and, and, and I always used to remember what Ron Atkinson used to say, the last thing he used to say before we go out. He said, they're paying. I'm going upstairs, entertain. He'd never bollock us for a misplaced pass or whatever. He'd bollock us for not trying to play the game the right way and go and entertain. And, that, you know, and you see the game now, you see, look at Norwich. Norwich have played a certain way this season, right? Which some people would say naive, is naive, and I would say it's naive, because, because the money that's involved in the game now, you've got to stay in the league. You can't go into the league and play in the Premier League and play that way, because you're going to get beat fours and fives, you know, by Christmas, you know, I, I think if the coronavirus hadn't happened by Christmas, they'd have been relegated anyhow, or as near as damn right? But there's a fine line between playing the way that they do and, 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 and surviving in the Premier League when there's so much money at stake. Because if Villa go down this season, I think the chairman said he's 230 million. But you see, this is where the problem comes in. Chris Hewton gets the sack at uh, Brighton, which I, I feel is very, very harsh with the job he's done. But they believe that this, this manager, which I believe is a good manager, I've seen what he's done, that he, they want to play an open and more expansive game of football. Well, they haven't done that. And, if they, and, and, and they'll just about stay up by the, by, by the skin of their teeth. Not particularly doing that greater than Chris Hewton. But it's, it's that culture of, well, what do we do? Play entertaining football or, you know, win football matches. Well, as it stands at the moment... You've got to win football matches. Hence why Sean Dyshead, Burnley does a fantastic job because he, 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 he plays a way that gets results. You know, Wolves have done the same. Um, up there, Sheffield United have done the same. Sheffield United have shown that you can take players. He's taken players that not only weren't championship players, some of them were even below that, but got a system that they all believe in that works Right, but it actually is entertaining as well. When you see the two centre backs flying in at the back post, you know it's entertaining because they get bodies in the box and they have goal mouth situations. So yeah, no, I, I mean, it, without a shadow of doubt, I, I, I would not. Um, oh, don't get me wrong. Of course, we'd all like more money, but at the end of the day, um, for me, it was the enjoyment, the fun, and, and when I bowed out, it, it was the right time to bow out. One of the things I want to get your perspective on as well, Carlton, is the the responsibility that players, managers, etc., have to fans in terms of spending time signing an autograph, getting a photograph. Now I know if you play for one of the big clubs, it can be completely overwhelming. I guess at times when there's big crowds, but for instance, one of the things that saddens me and I understand the, the way these things go is that Liverpool, when they go into their ground, the bus goes in under the ground and it comes out there, so they don't really get a chance to interact with the fans face to face. How important was it for you when you were playing to interact with the fans, sign an autograph, speak to a young kid? Because for me, going to games, even in Scotland, um, at the top level, with the, the likes of Celtic, Rangers, these big clubs, it seems to have gone out of the game. No, I, don't, I, 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 I disagree. I think the players get a bad deal, and that's been proved with the coronavirus. You know, the government of jumped on the back of the players. 
There's a lot of football players do a lot of good things, and I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't go and shout it from the rooftops. They don't need to shout it from the rooftops. Um, unfortunately, football players get picked up on because they earn the huge amount of money that they do. So they get picked up on by the media and by certain people in the public eye because of what they earn. But I know so many players who are not, who, do, who don't come out in the public eye who, who do so many great things for charities, right? So I, I think I'm going to clarify that. I think when I was going to a game, right, I'm focusing on the game. So when I went to the game, I was not really interested in signing autographs going into the ground. I didn't want to stand there for ages signing autographs. But anybody will tell you, any other club I've played at, when I come out after the game, there's no problem. Win, lose or draw, when I come out, I'll sign as many autographs, I'll stay as long as I can. But when you're going into the game and you're focusing on the game, and I think that's why, also you've got to understand now, there's, there's a safety issue now as well for the players. You know, there's a safety issue. So that's why you've got the buses that go under the, the, the tunnels, you know, for, for, you know, basically for the safety. You don't know who's going to be in that crowd or whatever that could attack one of the players. But certainly for me, my perspective, going into the game, if, if I saw somebody, if I got out of my car and somebody was there and asked for an autograph, I would never say no. But I wouldn't want to get involved in standing there for 20 yeah. minutes or whatever, signing autographs because I'm focusing on the game. After the game, no problem. No problem. Win, lose or draw, you know, when I come out, if we're playing at home and, and, and I'm going to the, the players' car park and, and, play, and, and fans are waiting out there, I'll sign as many autographs. But that's just me personally. I think, uh, you know, you, you've got to understand the game's moved on now and the, the paramount thing is, like, players, when they pull up at clubs now, is their safety, right? You, it, it's not the same as what it, what it was back in the day, you know? So I understand that issue, but I don't know many players and I've never met many players. In fact, off the top of my head, I wouldn't be able to name you one who, was, who I know in my career who wasn't, wasn't happy to sign autographs. We sign in the club. If people send stuff in, in the dressing room before the game, we sign an awful lot of things. You know, while we're there, you know, there'd be shirts to be signed, programs to be signed, pictures to be signed, whatever. We sign an awful lot of things during the week. Normally, there's one afternoon a week at a football club where the players have to just, you know, they, they don't have to, but they're asked to stay and, and sign shirts and memorabilia and whatever that's posted back to, to supporters. So, yeah, no, I mean, it's just the game's evolved a bit about, about that now. Yep, and in I must clarify also in terms of the, the, the work that footballers do when it comes to to, to charities and local organisations, I echo what you said there, the amount of footballers who I'm aware of as well, who don't go on the record and say that they do these things because they don't do it for the attention, is incredible. You look at Marcus Rashford, what he achieved with the government as well, is just absolutely extraordinary. And I think the, the government during the coronavirus, as we talked about at the start, picked on footballers at a time when they had no right to, when you see what football has has really given back through Marcus Rashford, through the players donating to food banks, through the, the NHS fund that the players set up as well. And also, people forget this. I know people say they're highly paid, but even getting football back to the way it was now, I mean, the players, they, football is their job. They were asked to go back to their job before many others in society were. And I know people say it's a glamorous job, but you've got to think there's, there's still risk involved there. And I think football and the players deserve immense credit for how they've handled this situation. 
Well, first and foremost, I think we, we, we need to squash this, this glamorous. It's hard work. If you are a professional footballer, let me tell you, and the higher up you go as, a, as an international player and you play at the top club, it is hard work. I can't tell you. If you're playing three games a week and you're coming home, you're dropping off another bag because you're flying off, you're playing in Europe in the week, then you've got to pay for an international. Let me tell you, it is hard work. A lot of the players, like for myself, I can tell you now, I, had, I, I bought an, a house in Portugal, right, while I was playing football. I didn't really enjoy that house in Portugal until after I finished playing football. <laughs> because I never had the time to go in the summer. We're off with England or pre-season trip or whatever. So to pick on footballers who, who have a difficult job to do in the first place, don't get me wrong, we have the trappings of, of, of success which rightly so, so does many other people. And so do a lot of people earn a lot of money. So why should a footballer all of, all of a sudden go, right, I'll tell you what we'll do, we'll give up 50% of our salary. No, 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 no. You don't get the right to tell a footballer to give up 50% of his salary. That's, that's, that's a no-no. And that should never have come back from the government. I've been in dressing rooms up and down the country for years where they've got together and we've made donations and we've done this and we've done that from our salaries, right? And they were always going to do something, but they had to be, it had to be done in the right way. They didn't go to other people and say, oh, let's go to all the bankers who earn all this money and, and whatever, and let's, let's um, get them to give some money. I don't hear them going to Richard Branson. Richard Branson, who's made so much money, right? He, he, he's gone to the government to bail him out to, to, for, his, for his company when he's made so much money. I'm sorry, and I know Richard does a lot for charity, but here, footballers were singled out, and I thought it was wrong. And a lot of footballers would have, would have done their part. You've got to understand, let me just quantify this, because people don't talk about this, right? Curtis Woodhouse, now, he's managing, ex-Sheffield United player. He's managing in, in, in um, the non-league at the moment, right? Now, you've got to understand that... The play, some of the players who are playing in the league today, in the lower leagues, players are getting more money in non-league. They're getting more money in non-league because they can work and they've only got to, they've only got to train, you know, maybe train three times a week. Players in the lower leagues actually play the game for the love of the game. They're not going to finish the game being financially secure. You've only got probably up to... I would even say League Two, if, you, if you're on, say for instance, and I'll give you a scenario, people think, oh right, okay, they're on three grand a week, saying League Two. But three grand a week, say that's 12 grand a month, netted down tax, and you've got a span of 10 years career, you're not gonna finish the game of football and be financially secure. You're just not, because you're finished at the age most footballers now. You know, I don't see any footballers really now playing to the likes of me, McAllister, Strachan, 38 to 40. Most of these footballers are finishing early. So to turn around and say to them that they should just automatically give up 50% of their salary is totally wrong. Yes, the top players in the Premier League and in the Championship up to a certain degree will, will you know, earn good money, but they were always going to do something. But they, they were going to do it their way once they understood the full facts. Because it's all right the club saying, you know, I'll tell you what, we'll ask you to take 50% in... in, in in your salary, right? But the clubs now have been found out because they don't run on a business footing. 
I was manager of Stockport County and I couldn't believe how the club was run. They were lucky they had a chairman in Brendan Elwood who just bankrolled the club. I tried to get it on a sound financial footing and all of these clubs now are finding out now how you'll see a big shift in salary changes now because they'll realise that they can't pay those salaries and just rely on gate receipts and, and whatever to pay them, right? So it, it, it's very difficult, you know, and, 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 and I was really upset that the players were singled out because as being an ex-player, if you do something and you do it for charity, you don't go singing about it because if you, if you, if you, if you have to sing about it, right, then you're not really doing it for the right reasons. You do what you've got to do. Floyd Mayweather just paid for the guy's funeral. And, and everybody, Floyd Mayweather's not said a word, paid for the, the black guy who was killed in America for his funeral, for his family and whatever. But then it's come out superseded. Floyd's not said a word, but it's superseded. Everybody's come out and said, everybody who knows him, Ashley Theoplane, who, who knows him very well, said, Floyd does that all the time. But nobody wants to talk about Floyd Mayweather with the things he does. All he wants to talk about is, oh, well, he's bought a new plane or he's done whatever. If he's earned the money, he can do whatever he wants to do. Do you know what I mean? But like I said, a lot of these players, I know Bex does it, I know a lot of these players, Scolzi, all of them, Teddy, they all, they all Sol Campbell, they all INSEE, they all do a lot. They've all got their own charities, they've all got their own foundations. They are very generous people. So very, it, it does upset me when I, when I hear the criticism that was leveled to them, especially from the government. And another, another um, factor I want to talk to you about is what it's like in terms of family life when you are a Premier League footballer, you are an England international. Was that something that you ever had any bother with when maybe you were taking the kids out for a day, you were out for a meal where people wanted to speak to you or they wanted to come up to you and say certain things? Yeah. I mean, listen, you've got to be very careful now, right? Because you can't, on one hand, say you earn this amount of money and you, have, you can provide this kind of life for your family without some kind of balance in it, right? So I've never had a problem with that. I've earned my money through being uh, in the public eye. So if I was out for, for, for dinner with my family, even now, I would still sign autographs, right? Um, I would still pose for a picture because that's how I've earned my money. But as long as people are respectful, and that's all the players ask for, is a little bit of uh, respect and whatever, that, you know, they are spending, especially, you know, if you've been away, like I said to you, if you've been away three nights of the week, right, and then you're just getting back and you, you manage to have a, a bit of Sunday lunch with your, your, your wife and your kids to understand that Monday we're gone again. Monday morning we're off again. So, you know, and, and, and generally, I've got to be honest with you, in my career, I, I've not really had people overstep the mark with me. Not at all, really. I, I can honestly say that. Everybody's been polite. They've come up. You know, Carlton, can we have a picture? You know, if they see me in the airport or wherever, if we're on holiday, they've, you know, they've waited till I've gone up to the bar to have a drink or, or whatever and say, you know, can, can we have a picture or whatever. I, I, I can honestly say there's been very few instances um, um, that I've had. Um, and, and that's probably why I love Sheffield. I, I, I think a lot of players that have gone there, a lot of famous people have gone there, right, have stayed there because I think that that is the way it is in Sheffield. You can go to a nightclub, you can go to a bar and you're not going to get mithered all the time. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, no. Um, for me, I, I've got to say, I, I, I don't know, you know, obviously I'm speaking from Carlton Palmer's perspective, 
I'm not David Beckham or, <laughs> you know, uh, or, you know, somebody like that who would go out for dinner and, you know, it, it, it'd probably be a different ball game for those type of people, you know? Um, but as I say, from my point of view, no, uh, I, I accept it, um, you know, as, as part of, of, of the package that comes with being a personality. I, I want to get your perspective um, on Southampton. Um, over the years, the media amplifies these things, I know. There was comments back and forth, you and Matt Latiss, um, Southampton legend, but um, have you sorted all that out now? Because two, two players that achieved so much in their career. come from to be fair um, Matt Letizia and I um, I, I mean I could show you a message now on my phone when I had heart surgery I think Matt Letizia was the first one to phone me um, I, I, listen what, what happened was I think and this is what again happens in the media now if you look at now uh, and I was told this it, it, to, to, to work in the media now you've got to have a large social media following that's where, that's where it all comes from so of course you you know you've got lads who make comments in in the media to attract people who are going to you know uh, follow them so they they get that social media following you know Matt had made a comment that I took the ump with uh, and he also made a comment in his book that I, I wasn't too happy with and 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 I addressed I addressed the comment with him I mean at the end of the day. I, 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 first and foremost, I've got a huge deal of respect. I mean, Matt's, Matt's missus actually texted me yesterday, uh, his wife. I've got a huge amount of respect for him. But when, when we, when the, the things that he said, he didn't need to say because he nearly got back in the England squad because of what I, what I brought to the party when I went back to Southampton. I, I was part of that situation that went in there that, Kevin Richardson came with me and we had, we had this thing where Matty was playing in a free role. We got him fit, we got him part of the lads coming out, having a drink with us, getting part. He nearly got back in the England squad. So he, he said a few things. I addressed them with, with Matty and we're fine, we're cool. He said what he's got to say. I've said what I said. He knows about an enormous amount of respect for him. But I don't like people jumping on the bandwagon and saying stuff about me because at the end of the day, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But the one thing you can't argue with, I'm not a shit player and I've never games, not just 18 times for England, but I played for England all the way through from under 21s, England. You don't do that if you're a shit player. So when people, you know, you've never heard, God rest his soul, Ray Wilkins, you ask him, you ask Gianfranco Zolo, you ask all these players who've played either with me or against me, right? And they'll tell you what they say about, what, what they think about me as a player. So don't jump on the bandwagon to, to knock somebody who's done what he's done with the ability he's got. And, and, and you know, they, they, the media then tried to say, you know, because I said, well, I don't think that Matt fulfilled his potential. And I still, I still don't think he fulfilled his potential. He was a hugely talented player. He should have gone a big, to a big club and tested. When I went to Leeds United, I wasn't guaranteed a playing. I could have stayed at Sheffield Wednesday in a little bubble there. But I went to Leeds United because um, 
A, Sheffield Wednesday wanted to sell me, so that, that was out of my hands. But B, I, I chose the club where it would challenge me as a player, hopefully to become a better player. I believe if Matt had gone from Southampton to, and it's all like people saying one club player, which is fantastic, but look at the players who've come from Southampton. Gareth Bell, you know, uh, Alan Shearer, um, you know, Theo Walcock, you know, you, you go and do the best you can. And if Matt wanted to stay for his career and, and, and do that fine, you know, um, in the manner that that was done. I, I, I didn't like it. And I, I said what I said, but like I said to you, Matt, Matt and I are fine. I think he's a, I think he's a, a terrific bloke and, and, and a seriously talented footballer. In terms of your playing career, Carlton, following Southampton, spells with Forest, Coventry, Watford, another spell with Sheffield Wednesday, then you go into the, the coaching and managing side, Stockport player manager, then Mansfield as well as a manager. First of all, before we talk about the coaching side, how do you reflect overall on your playing career? Because you've, you've talked already about the immense pride of the England Caps, playing for Leeds and, and what you achieved in the game. Is it something you still look back with great fondness on? Well, do you know what? I haven't really looked back yet. Do you know what? I've always been busy. I mean, Ron said to me at the time when I, when I took the player manager's job, I stopped. He said, I have a bit of time out. But the opportunity to get in at a championship club, good to, to let go. Um, so would too, I've got to be honest with you, um, my contract's up in two years here. And that'll be me then. I will, um, uh, I will be um, then spending the majority of time. Lucy and I will spend the majority of time in Portugal. And, and then it'll be nice to sit down with my son, watch the old tapes and, and reflect on... I, I think if you start sitting down and reflecting on things too early, it's almost as if you said, right, that's it now. I've got nothing more to do or nothing more to achieve and whatever. And I'm not quite, I'm getting there now. I, 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 I'll be honest with you. It's not like I've not got no burning ambition to go back into football management. I've not got nothing really that I'm, that I'm burning that I want to do. I've been very lucky that I've been able to do uh, everything that I've wanted to do. Would I have liked to I, uh, be more successful as a manager? Yes, I would have done. Uh, do I believe I could have been? Yes, I do. But the times is that the game's changed, and 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 I don't believe I would I would fit into the way the game would be now with the way the players are and everything. So that's passed me by now. And uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure if somebody asked me that in a few years' time when I've sat down and reflected, I mean, I'm hugely proud of. Of, of the fact that, 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 you know, first of all, walking out to, at the Hawthorns and, and making my debut for West Brom as a, a team I supported as a kid, and, you know, it's, it's a dream. And, you know, to go on and, and achieve what I, what I have achieved in the game um, and, and hopefully left a mark, um, then, yeah, I am immensely proud. But, I, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, you know, sitting down with, with, with Jordan um, you know, because he, he, he was very young at the time, Jordan. So, um, you know, he's never really seen his dad. You know, he's been to games, but he was a baby. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to, to, to the... Uh, 
before I let you go, just a few quick fire questions um, to finish. First one being um, best manager of your career and why? Uh, Ron Atkinson and why? Because if without Ron Atkinson, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I, I, I was literally probably three months away from the end of my contract, I would have been released, whether I got another chance in football, I don't know, so um, I, I owe him everything, I owe him to do what I, what I did and the confidence he gave me, you know, I've been able to look after my family through that. Um, so yeah, without dad, uh, Ron Atkinson, like I've said to you, he's, he's more than a, just a manager to me. He's, 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 a, he's like a, a, a second father to me. Toughest direct opponent? Um, you know, I mean, I still speak to him very, very regularly, and I and I see him. It's difficult that is because you know you've got playing at centre back and you're playing in the in, in the Premier League. You know, you've got Ian Wright, a nightmare to play against, uh, absolute nightmare to play against. Um, if you're coming into midfield, then you look at Patrick Vieira, uh, outstanding midfield player. Um, yeah, there's been there's been there's been so many um, players that you. You, you look at when you, you know, the Dutch national team with Rijkaard, Hullit, um, you know, Seedorf, you know, there's some tremendous players, you know, that, you know, for me, I, I, I just had to get my head down and do the best I can, you know. <laughs> Most underrated player you played with? Underrated. Underrated. That's a difficult one. As a Sheffield Wednesday, I wouldn't say that anybody was underrated. I, I tell you who did it. I, I tell you who doesn't get the credit that he should have got. Mark Bright. Mark Bright. He came to Sheffield Wednesday from Crystal Palace, where he had a huge, successful spell with with um, with uh, Ian Wright. Um, but people forgot that. Brighty scored an awful lot of goals at Crystal Palace himself. He finished leading scorer at Crystal Palace on several, several occasions. But when he came to Sheffield Wednesday, I was surprised at his, his professionalism, uh, his ability, uh, his work rate. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, sometimes I, I don't think people understand certain players unless you get to play with them. Do you understand? And I think Brighty was one of those, you know. And the last question, you're, you're the perfect sort of person to, to give this advice considering what you achieved in the career, the, the, the ups and downs that, that football brings. What advice would you give to any young players out there now trying to make their way in the game? Well, the, the simple advice is if you're not dedicated, forget it. It's as simple as that. You're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to have your disappointments. You're going to have your good times, you're going to have your bad times, but if you're not dedicated and 110% dedicated to it, um, forget it. You have to be focused. You have to be, t be able to take the good times as well as the bad. So you've got to, you've got to understand, like, if you're, if you're a well-known player and you've been successful and you're not playing well, you're going to get criticism. That is part and parcel. You've got to then 
suck that up, deal with it, and come through the other side. And this, and unfortunately, I, I, call, I call it the millennium kids. The millennium kids are too soft. They're like my children. They're too soft. Everything it gets a little bit hard, and they and and they want to give in. It's, it, 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 you've got to have more than that. You've got to have more backbone than that. You know, to be to be successful, you have to go through disappointment, through disappointment, through disappointment, and you have to keep going. And if you're not prepared to do that, not just in football, in life, if you're not prepared to do that, you're not going to get to the very top. You know, so my advice is, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people target football now for the money instead of for the love of the game. Mm. You know, that's a problem because I think the supporters see that, you know. If you're truly in love with the game, you'll do what you have to do. You know, you'll have to, you know, and, and, and like I say, for a young player, you've just got to, I don't say you've got to live, breathe, eat football 24 hours a day, because I didn't. But when it was time to work, I worked. And when it was time to party and play, I partied and enjoyed myself. Because you have to differentiate the two. You have to have a life. You, you've got to have, you know, a... Uh, and, and that's one of the things I didn't like in management. I didn't have a, a life really outside of working because it became so much about the results. Whereas when I played with Ron Atkinson, the, the result was secondary. He was more interested in developing players, improving players, and, and the players playing the way that he believed that they could play. And he believed by doing that, then in turn, that would get results. But the problem is now, it's more about the results than developing players. I mean, people talk about Frank Lampard. You know, oh, well, Frank's been lucky that he's ended up in Chelsea. He's probably been lucky. But I think he's only ended up in Chelsea because, at the time, the transfer embargo was put in, right? So they couldn't bring in a, a big-name manager who can't go and spend money. So then... They, 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 they've gone in, but it's been to, the, it's been to the, the benefit of the young players of the club. The young players have been out on, on loan at other clubs and young players that they've in there. And look how those players have, have done under Frank and developed. And, 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 you know, that's the part of the game now where, you know, you, you, you want to see these young players coming through and whatever, the young British players. You look at the young British talent we've got coming through now, but they need to play. And unfortunately, you know, because the manager is so under pressure to get results, he picks a team and picks players to get results. He won't chuck a young kid in. Whereas I think with Chelsea, they've gone with Frank because, and it was a perfect opportunity for them to do that to, to, because all that they had to do was go... With, with these young players and Frank knew the young players Jody Morris knew, knew the young players there you know so uh, it, it, it's one of those very difficult well, Carlton it's been an absolute pleasure I'd love to get you on again in the future as well thank you for your time no no problem at all just let me know look after yourself and stay safe so we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a and our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song